Humans are threatening the animal kingdom by taking over habitats, polluting our skies and waterways, and fueling global warming, creating an extinction event not seen in more than 10 million years. Right now, as you listen to this, there are more than 1 million species on the brink of disappearing. Thankfully, there are organizations working to save those species and to collect the biological materials necessary to bring them back when the technology is ready to do so. Amongst those organizations is the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Barbara Durant is the Director of Reproductive Sciences. Without zoos, without zoological societies, many of the species that people love to come and see would not be there. And so we have to change that public perception of zoos and wildlife centers. They are conservation organizations. Yes, they used to be menageries and they used to be exploitative of animals, but we have evolved. She's here with Marlis Hauk, curator of the Frozen Zoo, a leading model of biodiversity banking. They're here to talk about saving species. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. Let's start with a basic question. Who is Barbara Durant? Barbara Durant is the Director of Reproductive Sciences at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm originally from upstate New York, went to school in North Carolina and Georgia, and moved to California for a postdoctoral fellowship at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. And what is your position now? I'm Director of Reproductive Sciences. How did you get involved in this line of work you're in? From a very young age, I was always fascinated with animals, any kind of animals. We always have pets at home. My very first memory of my entire life is of our family dog. And I'm still very much a a dog aficionado. My family traveled around the United States a fair amount on family vacations. And everywhere we went, I insisted the entire family would go to the zoo. And so I was just always interested in exotic animals, animals of any kind. And growing up in upstate New York, we had moose and bear and fox and all of these wonderful native species. And so that was just always ingrained in me from the time I was very young to be interested in. My primary interest was always animals. I went to undergraduate school, studied biology, and then graduate school, reproductive physiology and genetics. And from the time when I finished my master's degree, they were starting the then Center for Reproduction of Endangered Species at San Diego Zoo. And I wrote to the then director of this new research effort and said, "I, I want to work with you. I want to work with animals and do reproductive research. And he said, that's great. Call me back when you have a PhD. So I did. And he He brought me on as a postdoctoral fellow, and I've been here ever since. Your website says your division studies reproductive biology, endocrinology, and behavior, and here's the part I'm really focusing on, and develops innovative methods to encourage species reproduction. How do you do that? I'm just picturing like a Playboy magazine for elk. I don't know. What what the... I wish it was that simple. Let me talk about the project that occupies a lot of our time right now, and that's the Northern White Rhino Initiative. We are working with Southern White Rhinos as a model for the very closely related subspecies of the Northern White Rhino. We brought in six rhinos from Africa, from South Africa in 2015. We immediately started measuring their hormones. We immediately started started training the animals, we have a team of wildlife care specialists who are also professional trainers. They started from the day these animals hit the ground in San Diego to train them. So they now voluntarily will walk into a chute and allow me to do transrectal ultrasound. So we are following their 
reproductive cycles, not only with their hormones, but by visualizing their uterus and their ovaries, sometimes on a daily basis. We know these six animals' reproductive cycles so intimately that we are able then to manipulate them successfully with, with hormone treatments. We can also synchronize our artificial insemination by looking at their ovaries, following the growth of the follicles on their ovaries, and we know exactly when they're going to ovulate. So it's almost like human reproductive science. There are many similarities. Some of the simulation protocols that we use before we collect eggs are very similar to those that are used in humans. Of course, our doses are a lot bigger, but it's the same theory and the same practice of growing a number of follicles so that you have more eggs to retrieve during a, a single process, a single operation. When you perform these processes on the rhinos, are they awake? The ultrasound is strictly voluntary, and they are fully awake, and they do this voluntarily. If any given day they choose not to participate, we don't do an ultrasound. We Everything is positive reinforcement here. And so if the female is just not feeling it that day, then we don't get our data that day. So we try the next day. When we do the the egg retrieval, they are immobilized. They are anesthetized. Rhinos don't look like they would go that complacently. But I do believe, I mean, rhinos look like ferocious creatures, but they're not, are they? It depends on what species you're talking about. The southern white rhino that we're working with and also the northern white rhino, they are the most docile of all the five rhino species. So we're lucky to be working with that particular species and having them in a special facility. We call it the Rhino Rescue Center. It's the Nikita Khan Rhino Rescue Center. And the trainers are with them every day. They're their keepers and they form very close relationships. All of these female rhinos know their names. They come when they're called. They allow blood collection. They allow x-rays. They allow. They will open their mouth on command so that the keepers can examine their teeth. So they form relationships with humans. Other species of rhinos, for example, the black rhinos, they are much more aggressive and not as easily, they don't as easily form relationships with humans. So we're lucky to be working with the southern white rhino. There are so many species in the world that are endangered. How do you determine which one you're going to put your efforts into saving? That's a group activity. We put our heads together. We decide certainly one of the criteria is their level of endangerment. Are they critically endangered? Are they not endangered? Another element into our decision is do we have them in our collection, either at the zoo or at the safari park? And the rhino, there's a critical need for saving the northern white rhino because, as you may know, there are only two left. They're both females. It's a mother and a daughter. The mother is no longer, actually neither of them are reproductive. We're lucky enough to have the very closely related subspecies, the southern white rhino, in our collection at the, at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. So we can model all of our techniques on the southern white rhino and they will be applicable to the northern white rhino. The other important thing in this particular project is what the the cell lines that we have in the frozen zoo, which Marlis will talk about. We will get to that. I just want to know if if we know why has it gotten to this point where white rhinos are so at risk? The primary reason is poaching. It's human endangerment. Are we having any success with stopping that? The latest report that we got from the International Rhino Foundation 
population indicated that there was a growth in the southern white rhino population in South Africa or throughout Africa this year. Poaching levels remained the same, but the actual numbers of rhinos increased. So apparently reproduction is doing well. They're holding steady on the on the poaching numbers. They haven't gone up, but they also have not gone down. If there are two white rhinos left, how do we save this species? And especially if they're not capable of giving birth. With the northern white rhinos, luckily we have their subspecies, the southern white rhino. Now that's not always going to be the case. There will be other species that won't have a very closely related subspecies, but we're fortunate in this regard. So we're using the southern white rhino as a model. They do hybridize naturally. There has been a hybrid born and survived. So we know, and we've done the extensive genetic analysis here and in other facilities with our our partners have done extensive genetic analysis, and we know that they are very, very closely related and actually subspecies. So that gives us a perfect model. We know that if we can figure out how to collect eggs, mature those eggs in vitro, fertilize them in vitro, and do embryo transfer in the southern white rhino, we'll be able to do it in the northern white rhino. I know there are people out there who will say, well, if a species is going to go extinct, a lot of species have gone extinct in our history. What is it about the white rhinos that make them so worthy of saving? There are a couple of things. First of all, rhinos are very important in the ecosystems in which they live. As they walk along and browse, they are browsers, they keep the grass at a level where the predators can see the prey. They also, as they walk along and eat that grass and process that grass, they and they fertilize behind them. They're fertilizing the ground. So the grasses you know, continue to grow. So there's a a large prey base there, and the predators can see the prey. But the rhinos are kind of a cornerstone for a lot of these savanna habitats where they do keep the grasses down and fertilize and keep the plants growing. I'm just wondering if rhinos like browsing so much, have you thought of getting them an Amazon account? (laughs) Good idea. Can you point to areas where we have successfully stopped a species from nearing extinction? I know I have interviewed the president of the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, and they said they were having some success with gorillas in bringing them back. Yes, I think Marlis just reminded me. I think California condor is a wonderful example. They got down to about 22 individuals, and they were all brought into managed care. And we then we and others, our partners, started breeding them in managed care and slowly reintroducing them. Now there are over 500, half of which are free-flying and now reproducing in the wild. So that's one great example. Another one is the, the Arabian oryx, which is a desert animal that also went extinct in the wild. It was They, they had some individuals in managed care, bred those individuals uh, to San Diego and many other places, and then reintroduced them. They are now living again in the wild and reproducing in the wild. I'm going to bring Marlis in. Let's start with who is Marlis Hauk? I am the curator of the Frozen Zoo at San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. And my background is in human cytogenetics, which is the study of cells for their chromosomes. I'm certified as a human cytogeneticist, and that was my field. And then I diverted to immunology for a while, and I needed to know the chromosomes of mice, not just humans. And so I thought, oh, I'll go to the San Diego Zoo and volunteer. And they will teach me mouse chromosomes and I can help them somehow with my skills because I knew the lab at San Diego was one of the few groups doing chromosome studies on 
animals, on wildlife. And so I thought this was a great way that we could both benefit each other. So I got an interview to be a volunteer. And the interview was with Arlene Kumamoto, who was the curator of the Frozen Zoo at the time. And it was the hardest interview of my life. And at the end, they said, we have a one-year grant position. You would be taking a big pay cut from biotech, but we'd like to hire you for one year to do the chromosomes of rhinos. And rhinos have 82 or 84 chromosomes, so it was going to be challenging. But they were very excited because their one-year timeline, they figured they would have to teach somebody from the beginning. And they felt that I was coming in at about six months of knowledge. I considered it for a minute and said, yes, if I lose this job at the end of a year, if the grant in, that's great. It will look good on my resume. I will have learned what I wanted to learn and I can go on and do something else because I was fairly young. And that was about 36 years ago. That's a warning to everyone who takes a one-year grant position somewhere. It could end up being your life. <laughs> it could. And I don't regret it. What is the frozen zoo? So the frozen zoo is a biobank. It has living cells, skin cells. They're called fibroblasts. And it has gametes, uh, sperm, eggs, and reproductive tissues. And everything in there is living and frozen in liquid nitrogen at very cold temperatures. And this is the largest biobank of its kind in the world because we have so many individuals and we have so many different species. And we have, currently we have over 10,900 individuals represented in the frozen zoo. And that represents over, we're at about 1,280 species and subspecies. And these are birds and mammals and reptiles and amphibians and fish. And then recently, an invertebrate, a couple invertebrates. So what is the point of, of the frozen zoo? Why do we collect all these materials? The frozen zoo was the vision of Dr. Kurt Benershka back in about 1975. And he was actually trying to study chromosomes from animal samples, blood and skin samples. Anything that's li living and dividing material, you can look at the chromosomes. And he wanted to study the chromosomes of animals because we found that they contain anywhere from six to 118 chromosomes. And he was very interested in this. In the 70s, it was a big thing to learn about species in this way, how different they were. It was, a, it was kind of a new frontier. They were collecting these samples, usually from animals at necropsy. The necropsy room was right there next to the lab, and they would collect the samples and grow cells. And then he said, you know, we need to just keep banking these because we don't know the potential for the future, what they could be used for as technology advances. And he even said perhaps they could be used for cloning sometime in the future. And he was right because you fast forward now and the way technology has progressed, these cells can be used for so much more than he even ever envisioned. We've seen enough science fiction movies where mankind has to go reestablish itself on another planet because we've wiped out Earth. So is there an element of bringing all the species with us as well? Yes, I suppose. I mean, each of these cells, and especially if we have an animal where we have not only the skin cells, but the gametes represented, for example, some of the northern white rhinos, I think that this gives us all the information, most of the information we could ever get about an animal. It has their entire genome in the nucleus of the cells. The gametes are the reproductive cells of the animal. And so 
I suppose technically, yes. Can you collect DNA and whatever other materials you need from species that are currently extinct? No, we can't do that. So to have living cells, you have to take it before the cells die. So either when the animal is alive or very shortly after death. But there are a lot of things that kill the cells. If you think of other zoos around the United States will also collect samples from their animals when they have an opportunity. And they often ask us, can I do this or can I do that? And will the cells still be living? So sometimes it's helpful to give them the example of a leaf of lettuce. When you look at a crisp leaf of lettuce, those cells are alive. If you let it dehydrate and the lettuce wilts, it's because the cells are dying. If you freeze the leaf of lettuce, it will wilt because the cells are dying. And if it becomes decayed, it will wilt and the cells are dying. So we can't have the cells frozen or even placed in alcohol that would kill the cells. So it has to be a fresh sample, either from a live animal or shortly after death. I've got to go get that head of lettuce out of my freezer. I don't think it's going to make for a good salad at any time. I'm speaking about the skin cells. It's a little different for the gametes, and Barbara could talk to that. Barbara, would you like to talk to that? Certainly, your question is is very relevant. to To bring forth life, you have to have cells. You have to have living materials. So if we have oocytes in the freezer, and if we have sperm, and if we have cells, cell cultures, living cells, fibroblast cells, for example, then all we would need then is we we could make the embryos, we could make clones. We would need recipients, though. So that would be difficult if all animals, if you're in, in your hypothetical case, if all the animals were gone, we, we could make the embryos, but we wouldn't have any animals to transfer those embryos into for gestation. So that would require artificial wombs. There are people who are starting to work with that. So theoretically, yes, with what we have in the frozen zoo, we could bring back animals, even if there weren't any extant animals. How many species do you have in the frozen zoo? Currently, we have over... 1,280 species and subspecies, and it's growing. We add to the frozen zoo constantly. Each year, we add about 300 to 350 individuals and about 40 new species. And this is all done, I'm talking about the cell lines mainly again, and this is done primarily with just three very highly trained tissue culturists in the lab. Uh, You were talking about extinct species. Now, if we can get the samples before the animal goes extinct, then we can add them to the frozen zoo. And currently in the frozen zoo, we have cells and gametes from three extinct species, cells or gametes from three extinct species. The po'uli, po'uli is the Hawaiian honey creeper that went extinct in 2004. We got the last animal. Um, We also have Saudi gazelle, cell lines, and Rab's tree frog sperm. What does it take to store all this material? I mean, I'm picturing a warehouse like at the end of Indiana Jones. Does it require that big a space? The space of the frozen zoo is about about the size of a garage, about the size of a two-car garage. Mm -hmm. And we do have a duplicate collection on a separate power grid in case power were to go down or fire or earthquake because we are in Southern California. But it's about the size of a two-car garage. And in that, we have kind of people compare it to looking like the vats in a brewery. They're very metallic looking cryotanks and they hold liquid nitrogen and they're hooked up to a supply line of liquid nitrogen because they can never thaw. If they thaw, the cells and gametes would die. And so we have a small group of us in Barbara's team that maintain the facilities and the infrastructure. And we're on call around the clock to make sure that nothing ever happens to either of these two duplicate collections. 
Isn't there a place in, is it Iceland or something, where there is some kind of a biodiversity bank that is underground and it's big cavernous thing. There is, and it only holds plant material. And it did, unfortunately, thanks to global warming, it did have a melt in the last couple of years. And so now I was just speaking with the people who run it just a few days ago, and they said that they are now powering it. It, it was built into the side of a mountain. Right. It was a brilliant idea. So those plant materials didn't have to be kept as cold as our cells need to be kept. Our cells are kept in liquid nitrogen, which is minus 196 centigrade. And those were in the in the permafrost. They weren't cold enough and there was a melt. So they are now powering that facility. Is there a holy grail of DNA capture that you're looking for that have you've not been able to get yet? Yes. Just a species that we... That yeah, that you would like to store but don't have material from as of yet. Yes, and it's now DNA is a different story. DNA is non-living material, and that's much easier to collect. And so any museum sample, if you had that animal, the body of the animal in a museum, that would contain DNA. It might be ancient DNA, or you can get DNA from bones, because it's non-living material. What we have in the frozen zoo is the living material, and that's why it's so unique. That's why there are very few collections like this, because it's harder to get, harder to maintain, harder to process, harder to store. But one on my list, because again, back to that I was brought here to figure out how to grow rhino cells and figure out the chromosomes. So when I came in the 80s, the chromosome number, even of the Sumatran rhinoceros, was unknown, which I just find that so hard to believe that we don't have that kind of knowledge. At this stage of the game, we can send man to the moon, as everybody always says, but we don't even know some of the basic genetic information about some of these species. But we did get Sumatran rhinos because they were in zoos. And as they died, we got material and we did figure out that chromosome number. The species that no one has any living material from, one, is the Javan rhinoceros. And nobody knows the chromosome number or the genome sequence or anything like this of the Javan rhinoceros because we don't have any samples. We don't have any sperm. We don't have any eggs. And we are not likely to get any anytime soon. And the species is declining rapidly. So I think when I talk about the extinct species in the frozen zoo, it's amazing that we have them, but that's not what we want to do. We don't want to get down to the last pa'uli and then try to freeze the cells or the gametes. When I froze the pa'uli, we weren't even freezing bird cells. We didn't know how. This was basically the first bird cells that we ever froze in the frozen zoo. And you don't want to learn on the last one of an individual. So what we're trying to promote is creating, teaching our methods to people around the world and helping them to create frozen zoo-like collections in other countries where they have the species occurring right there. They have a, a high diversity, a, a high level of biodiversity in other countries, and we should set up samples there and not wait till we're down the last one, or even even back to the Javan rhinoceros, we need to start banking them now. Somebody needs to bank them because we don't want to get down to the last five individuals and try to figure it out then. Barbara, do different species of rhinoceros get along with each other? Yes. For the most part, they don't live in the same areas, although black rhinos and southern white rhinos do live in, in similar areas, and they basically ignore each other. They, they live compatibly. They don't live together. But they, they occupy some of the same habitats. So we don't see examples of crossbreeding? We don't in the wild, no. Could that be done in your organization to keep a species alive? Would, would it keep a species alive? It would not keep a species alive because then you'd have a hybrid and that would be a new species. 
<laughs> and that's something that we don't want to do. Can we breed little tiny rhinos for people to have as household pets? It's funny that you say that. That's It's an idea that we have semi-jokingly brought up many, many times. If we could genetically engineer rhinos, elephants, giraffes to be very small, occupy less space, we could protect them better. When mankind has evolved to this to the point where we are no longer destroying the planet we could then genetically engineer them back up to their original size that's not it's not something that we actually could do or would have time to do but it's a very interesting idea to miniaturize them in order to save them i would love one i put me on the list i'll be happy to take one <laughs> What can the average person do to help save our endangered species? The obvious thing to do is to reduce your carbon footprint. Don't fly everywhere. And if you do, if you must fly, then invest in carbon offsets. Just in in your home, reduce your water uses. Take shorter showers. You don't need to stand in the shower for half an hour. Recycle, compost, all of those very simple things that can easily become a habit, an everyday habit. Put solar on every building. In California, there's now a law that every new constructed home must have solar, which is great. It's a great start. We're starting a little late, but we're, we're starting. So there are, there are so many things. The other important thing is to be aware, educate yourself. What is native where you live that you can help to save? Grow native plants in your garden instead of exotics. Grow native plants that will attract butterflies and birds that are native to your area. It's easy to do. It's fun to do. Learn more about your native wildlife. And that includes plants. Of course, we think of wildlife as animals, but plants are the foundation of all life on this planet. So we have to pay much more attention to the plant life and protect those plants. I know living in this area, we have a a large percentage of our greenery here is invasive species or exotic species that become invasive. And so we need to change that. We need to make people aware. That's the biggest thing is educate people about what they can do. These simple things that don't cost them much or anything, simple things that they can just incorporate into their daily routine will make a big difference. I have already cut down my shower time. I put solar on my house, so I'm getting there. I do probably have to adopt a gorilla or a rhino or something, and that would help (laughs) if my neighborhood would allow it. I'm not sure. What, what the zoning laws are. Well, at least adopt a pair so you'll have some reproduction. Where can people, now money is always a big issue with scientific research, where can people donate to your organizations? People can donate directly to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. They also can, and they can designate their donations to animal care or if we put in a pitch for ourselves for research or wildlife help and they, they can designate where their donation, they would like their donation to go and our organization is very faithful about honoring those intentions. And same thing for you, Marlis. Is, is that money filtered down to the frozen zoo or can people allocate specifically to the frozen zoo? Yes, and we've been very fortunate. The public seems to understand the need for the frozen zoo and we have had many donations. Much of our work has been possible because of the donations that we receive over the years for the frozen zoo. And do you want to put a pitch in for the San Diego Zoo? Yes, certainly donations to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance are most gratefully received. But we have to say also that there there are a lot of other very worthy conservation organizations. If someone would prefer to donate to some field effort or another organization, all you have to do is go online 
And if you have, like you've mentioned gorillas, go online, look up the animal that you love the most that you would like to help save. And you'll see a list of nonprofit organizations that will accept your donations and, and will put that money to work in saving that species. Are there any evil species that we shouldn't save? Humans. Good point. I can add for, for supporting San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, every time someone comes to visit the San Diego Zoo or Safari Park, when they when they buy a ticket to attend the zoo or the safari park, they support our efforts. Without zoos, without zoological societies, many of the species that people love to come and see would not be there. And so we have to change that public perception of zoos and wildlife centers. They are conservation organizations. Yes, they used to be menageries and they used to be exploitative of animals, but we have evolved and that is not the case. But so many species, the California condor that we mentioned before, would not exist on this planet if it was not for the the efforts of conservation organizations like San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. Is there any question that I have not asked that either of you would like to answer? I think you've been quite thorough. Thank you. Okay. I think that's all the time we have. I am fascinated by your work. I will continue to support zoos and nonprofits because I love animals and all animals. I prefer to hang out. I have a dog and two cats and I much prefer to stay home with them than I do going out to a party or something. You're speaking to kindred spirits here. I, I always say this would be a great planet if it weren't for the humans. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate your time and continue that great work. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to Barbara Durant and Marlis Hauck for sharing their urgent and fascinating work, not to mention their admonitions. The crisis is real. Mankind made this mess, and all men, women, and children can help to clean it up by making some simple lifestyle choices. And whenever you can, make donations to your favorite wildlife nonprofits and visit a zoo. The cost of admission is generally supporting their ecological and scientific missions. Perhaps the animal kingdom will appreciate it by not rising up and eating us. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.